Hello, you're listening to Send in the Experts with Georgina Durrant. This podcast is all about teaching and supporting children and young people with special educational needs and disabilities, SEND. My name is Georgina Durrant. I'm the host of this podcast brought to you by Twinkle SEND. As a former teacher in Senko myself, I want to create a platform to share some of the amazing things that my guests are doing to support learners with SEND. So whether you're listening on your commute, tuning in whilst walking your dog or curled up on the sofa with a nice cup of coffee, thank you so much for joining us. Today, I've got the real pleasure of chatting to the very lovely Susie Rowland. Susie is an author, autism and ADH specialist, cognitive behavioural therapy practitioner and speaker. She founded the Happy in School project to address educational inequalities by providing creative and interactive training and consultancy rooted in lived experience. She works directly with local authorities, families and young people examining hotspots and building connections to enable educators and families to work collaboratively for successful educational outcomes. The project started off as a forum for autism and ADHD parent advocacy and quickly developed into detailed training programs for mental health professionals, educators and complex organisations. Wow, Susie, that's pretty impressive. Hi. Hi, Georgina. God, I think, wow, that person sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) It's you. Um, How are you? How are you doing? I'm really well. and Thank you so much for inviting me to chat to you. I I feel like I know you. We've already done so much sort of social media chat. So it's really nice to talk to you today. Oh, you too. I've been really looking forward to having a little chat with you all week. So that's good. Um, So your background, I've gone over your amazing background a little bit, but can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and in particular for our listeners, why you're so passionate about special educational needs? Yes, I mean, for me, the real passion comes from a sense of humanity and also a real passion for education. So like many of your listeners, I come from a bit of a tradition of a family of teachers. So my my late mother was a a teacher, an English teacher, Mm -hmm. and that explains my love of writing and creative writing and poetry. And um, it skipped a generation. So I went into marketing and communications uh, and copywriting. And my daughter is a primary teacher. So education has been something that is really sort of in my DNA and in my family's DNA. And I remember even my grandfather, who was um, born and brought up in the Caribbean, he could recite um, whole passages from Shakespeare well well into his 80s. I mean... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so we are, we love, we just love learning and education. And it's something that I think particularly as sort of Caribbean um, descendants, it's a really important part of certainly my culture and my family's culture in terms of how you get to where you want to go, how you develop mm-hmm. passions, your strengths, your talents, whatever it might be, if it's writing or art or sport or whatever we've always really sort of instinctively understood the power of education to help you go from a to z brilliant I love that that's a really lovely explanation um so if we start with your happy in school project you founded and you run the happy in school project what is it why did you set it up and who is it for yeah yeah so um my personal journey to to my passion around send the send part of education is through my son like many practitioners um my son was diagnosed with ADHD and autism spectrum condition age nine mm-hmm. um and we'd had quite a bumpy primary lots of exclusions and lots of difficulties and 
different schools because I kept thinking well maybe this school will be better and you know it's it's a common pattern that parents can tend to hop around schools until they find the right setting particularly if they're undiagnosed because you don't really know what you're dealing with actually um so it's sort of logical to think well if I change the environment um but you don't always know how to change the environment that you're already in actually yeah, that's a really a good point of, yeah, yeah like not yeah. having the control in that classroom to be able to make the changes that your child needs so thinking actually a fresh start would that be a better option absolutely absolutely and I, and I see it a lot with the parents that I meet through the happy in school project so so really it was me taking everything I'd learned from my sort of previous life and sort of communications and copywriting and and sales and marketing and thinking how can I take what I've learned personally and also through my experience with my son and all of this change and trauma and develop a sort of um, advocacy program training type thing? I mean, I just sort of thought, I'm going to do this. And I actually didn't think too hard about it, which is with hindsight, you think, oh my goodness. <laughs> um, but I, I was so committed and actually uh, through his whole diagnosis process I I had to leave my main job my sort of previous career and that's again a really common yeah. thing that there is tends to be a parent who just has to take on <clears throat> sorry the responsibility of working with the school going to appointments going to therapies and getting that child settled and yeah. and that was me um, so I had plenty of time to think and retrain and uh, I just grew more and more fascinated in in what was going on and all of the aspects of it, the aspects of parents insecurity teachers insecurities as well yeah, um, yeah even though you know you, you're trained as a teacher and I, I saw it with my daughter um, you know huge confidence in teaching but in some cases particularly newly qualified teachers a bit less confidence in managing some of those quote more challenging children yeah Um, absolutely I don't think there's enough training there's not enough out there for it is there no no um and that's I discovered that in in my first book in terms of the the levels of training um I mean as we know certainly is a huge huge area Mm-hmm. And it's kind of distilled into, you know, a couple of modules on the, the yeah. teacher training. So I know that there's there's lobbying around changing that. Yes. Um, but as far as I know, um, <laughs> they're still coming out with pretty basic understanding of what what yeah. then looks like in the classroom. So um, I, I just sort of went at it and, and I liked um, Happy in School because I thought, well, that's a nice goal you know your school day should be the best days of your life kind of <laughs> yeah <laughs> um not in my son's case and not in many of the children who yeah. I work with and I thought well there's got to be a way that we can you know collectively parents professionals teachers school leaders we can work together we can fill the gaps we can we can get this get this done and get this sorted um so that was my goal and 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 it was very much on on a a positive outcome because so much of the parent experience you know and the child experience can be negative so it had to be what can we do to make it much happier experience and you know lots of answers 
But if that's the goal, to have a, a well-balanced, happy child, you know, a happy child is, is more willing and open to learn. Yeah, completely. Um, and, and I think if, if we even, you know, take all of the uh, adjustments and interventions out of the, the picture, what are we doing enough to make our kids feel happy in school? Are we doing enough to make them feel relaxed? Um, and we've had COVID, for goodness sake, and it's like yeah. a huge, huge stressor. And I think the, the concept of well-being is now become really mainstream. Yeah which is it's just a joy to see that development over the last sort of five six seven years it's it's really good to see that happen so that's the philosophy oh, I love it you're so inspirational I love that you just wanted to make well it's just your goal to make children happy I just love that I think that's you know that's wonderful you sound like such a mother hen in that you've like gathered everything together to make everyone better in school and like collect, collect but in a positive way not in like a teacher bashing sort of this is what's gone wrong it sounds more like it's positive and bringing people together and sort of nurturing um the environment and making making things making children happy I love that oh it's brilliant <laughs> That's going to be my new nickname, Mother Hen. <laughs> I can see that sticking. <laughs> uh, the other thing that I noticed you do is it's called the Teens Girls Circle. What, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I mean that that's um that's a project that is um I piloted that last year. Uh, again, one of those things I I thought I know. <laughs> I have lots of girls coming, and 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 that also feeds into the I can't go to school book because lots of the the, the young people I worked with around school non-attendance were young girls although there were some boys it was the majority of them I was working with still oh, am wow. working with girls yes um and I saw lots of patterns in those girls not least their neurodivergence mm-hmm. uh, but also patterns about um <clears throat> self-esteem patterns about confidence patterns about you know who am I how do I be a new divergent girl um how do I fit in you know that whole mean girls thing yeah how do I fit in and and um I mean I I had I can really really resonate because I always didn't feel I I fitted in at school um so I have a real affinity and I thought I'm gonna get all these girls together and we're gonna do some relaxation we're gonna do some um talking therapy around school we're going to look at building confidence we're going to do some creative stuff and uh and I say it was a pilot and it's it's in sort of in development stage but one of the interesting things I learned was as much as the intention was good because the anxiety levels in some girls are so high even getting to the sessions um, yeah wow so even I think, hard Absolutely. And I didn't want it to be an online thing. Um, yeah. Although at the moment I'm looking at all options being explored and I've got a bit of a, a sort of task force group together. So that's, that's kind of bubbling under um, which I will be progressing. But um, I I still think that the, the therapy and the healing for the particular cohort of girls comes from meeting other girls yeah, people going through similar things, and once they're in the door, I mean, we had such firm friendships. But 
the the anxiety just to come in um so that was the real learning for me because I I I had anticipated well maybe going to school is difficult um but this is this is great but it just goes to show that the the anxiety is kind of all pervasive um it's really difficult for families so absolutely yeah I can see that yeah that sounds really good what you're doing but yeah such a good point about the anxiety about coming to the sessions and stuff and being a you know it is tough being a teenage girl it is really hard to find your place and to feel accepted and girls are mean and complicated and the friendships are very very complicated especially and it can be even more so for neurodivergent kids can't it because of the sort of social nuances and all of that that just is tricky absolutely I mean I, I it's there's a whole new work stream that's coming out of that which is I, I've just really enjoyed um and I think looking at neurodivergence um you know my experience has shown yes we do have differences in presentation between girls and boys um however this cohort is also very unique in how they view themselves how they identify and I'm meeting a lot of girls who are you know they're non-binary or they may not identify um, with their peers for a number of reasons so I I think yes let's call it girls but you know I I I learned a lot in that process yeah no that's a very good point yeah Yes. Oh, it's good to see it's very inclusive as well. That's great. So in the background, and I'm going to tell everybody that Susie actually made this background of her her room really lovely and smart for this. It always looks (laughs) like this, doesn't it, Susie? But in the background, (laughs) in the background, I can spot one of your books, your um, Send in the Clown's book. Can you see it just there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can we ask you about that? So can you tell us more about the book and what inspired you to write Send in the Clown's? Yeah, yeah. So that was my um, my second book and my first book on Send. So it's it's semi autobiographical. Um, so um, all of the issues around my son's diagnosis and what was happening, and um, you know, I, I look back and it it it, w- it was kind of really intense, and yeah. um, a lot of that uh, experience sort of works through the happy in school project and I could really empathize because I've lived it um so I began writing diary notes you know what he'd had a bad day at school or I had you know I was called by the teacher in the playground which was literally like so I would I'm just getting anxiety just thinking Uh about it (laughs) and and, you know can I can we have a word oh yeah um and all of that kind of thing so all of those diary notes um, started to become more narrative in tone. And I thought, well, maybe this is something I can I can share and, you know, put my pain into a positive context for other yeah. people. Um, and so when we got to a point much later in his life that he was sort of settled and in secondary school, although his secondary school, his second secondary school, not the first one, that didn't work either. Um, so I I thought that I'd take um, step, a step back and it not just be like a, a sort of sob story because, you know, we've all got something that's similar. So I wanted it to be more about um, information and, and ASD and autism together 
and experiences around boys and around black boys and the things that I'd learned that were positive and you know things like how you can build a good relationship with the school and how yeah. you can do your research on what kind of schools might work if you get the diagnosis and how you can complain if you need to and how you might want to um you know even things like all the acronyms SALT and ELSA what does all this mean and and, so I, I very much went into sort of um help mode mother hen mode mother hen mode <laughs> I'm going to capture all this and if there's someone who is 10 15 years younger than me just going through mm. that process this book will help them because it will bring my story to life so I can empathize and it will give them the nuts and bolts of the basics of, of what it all means what does the HCP stand for um is it useful how is it useful how do you get one um what to do if you don't get one what does send support means so I just put I just downloaded my brain and thought that's gonna help someone someday wow Uh, that's amazing it's it's almost like having like somebody like another mum or another parent to talk to almost who's been there and done that and got some advice to pass on to you because I'm I imagine it can be very isolating being a parent of a child with special education needs and disabilities because you've you've not got the same there's not the same number is there of people of parents that you're going to get on with who've got the same experience as you that you can ask questions and and you know because yeah for me for example if my kids aren't sleeping very well you can ask lots of parents about that but you're sort of looking at a more niche sort of uh, there's less less people to talk to about um the problems you're facing so it's almost like your book is that person you're like yeah people can yeah. use it to ask to answer those questions that they don't absolutely. know the answer to absolutely I must say I um I mean when when I was going through the diagnosis when we were going through the diagnosis um I didn't do the sort of Facebook um forums I'm not the kind of person um who I like to share things with people I don't know yeah Um, I and also like everyone I I thought well maybe my question's silly and I I also felt very out of the loop because I was working full time um and you know still a little bit of anxiety because I even had a head teacher say well if you weren't working maybe he wouldn't behave like this yeah yeah oh my goodness so I still felt felt anxious about well you know that sort of mother guilt oh my goodness I can't believe someone said that to you Susie I'm feeling crossed about that that's appalling yeah 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 so you know people have all different views and perspectives Mm -hmm. and you know I I always kind of felt if you have to work you have to work yeah you can stay at home you stay at home and it's everyone has to make the decision based on their personal situation um and it is complicated if your child has additional needs without doubt yeah because then you get into the issues of what you may be encountering financial difficulties because you've had to go part-time or give up your job or change career um so for me writing it down and sort of going here you go this might help um rather than having to sort of face people online or you know because some people can say things that can be very hurtful mm-hmm. 
Um, and particularly, you know, if you're neurodivergent yourself, you can misinterpret how someone says something or you can get yeah. the wrong end of the stick. So I think there's an absolute place for social media support groups and Facebook groups and WhatsApp groups. Absolutely. Um, but in the same way I, with the sort of girls groups, I think there's also a place to have something you can just have by yourself and highlight it and and uh, read it and think about it. Yeah. And place to have face-to-face connections as well. So for me, I was thinking of people who may not want to do that whole group thing and they may have they don't want to share uh, because people can be quite judgmental actually absolutely especially behind a keyboard (laughs) unfortunately people don't see the um yeah they don't see the person so they're hidden behind a keyboard and can be a little bit cruel can't they to put it like yes yes exactly so hopefully sending the clowns you know I've, I've had amazing um uh feedback from from people um which has been that's just been the that's just been my raison d'etre that's why I did it you know because yeah. it was published during uh covid um so the bookshops weren't open <laughs> the worst possible time to put a book out <laughs> um but the people still find it which is fantastic and it's still helpful and relevant Good. um and that's that's job done for me yeah and I'm curious sending the clouds like why the book title who are the clowns well there is a film called sending the clowns mm-hmm. and there's a whole soundtrack which is really beautiful um but lots of um kids and parents have been described as being the class clown yeah and um we all see clowns as being kind of they're funny they're at the circus and but I see the kind of sadness you know behind mm-hmm. the, the clown character and also I see the whole masking you know literally masking um and a lot of the kids who not not just boys actually who present as the class clown and they're disruptive and they're you know they're really seeking approval from their peers and their friends um and when you talk to them one-to-one they're they're doing that because they feel they don't want everyone to know that they they can't read or they don't want people to know that they they find it hard to sit still or they feel you know whatever their issue is um, and whether or not they're neurodivergent there is always a reason for that level of clowning so for me it was just kind of taking a different perspective on those kids and not immediately looking at them as troublemakers or disruptive and say what's going on behind that really loud extroverting what yeah. to make the whole class laugh character so that yeah. that's was quite what was behind it that's brilliant yeah and you're so right about children that are you know acting up and being disruptive and there being reasons behind it because quite often it, I think if you've got to make a choice and you can get it especially being a teenager if you've got to make a choice between people knowing you can't read that text or people knowing you can't write as well as them or making people laugh and being a bit disruptive, you're probably going to choose the being disruptive because it's it's socially more acceptable, isn't it? And it's easier to be that person. Definitely. And if you think about it, there's loads of comedians and actors 
and when they're interviewed they say oh I was always a class clown I was always mucking about mm-hmm. making everything laugh because I found lessons really boring or I couldn't I couldn't read I didn't know then but I was dyslexic so there's a kind of rationale to it and so I'm really always interested in in those characters yeah so in so, Sending the Clouds you also write about the connection between race and autism and some of the barriers you face in accessing support for your child as a mum of black Caribbean heritage and you discuss how black children in particular are often more likely to be excluded from schools in the UK than their white peers can you tell us more about this? Yes yes I can I mean I, I think that um Again, that's a whole topic, and, and the issue, topic. <laughs> the issue of, of of race. Um, Liz Pemberton, who is on uh, Twitter, I think, and um, Instagram as yeah. the Black Community Manager, talks really, really deeply about um, what's happening in the classroom uh, to black children, and I'm saying black specifically rather than any other acronym because I think everyone knows what I mean Mm -hmm. Um, and what's happening in the early years which then kind of creates a trajectory towards what happens when they go to secondary school it's really it's complicated in that um, we've got beautiful kids and they come in they're full of sunshine and enthusiasm and as lots of children are, but somewhere down the line, when they are particularly black boys, are growing up and they become bigger and physical, there's something that changes in the mindset of the adults around them, particularly in schools, which they perceive as somehow threatening or aggressive. And and you think about it, I, I like to look at it as, as a kind of hidden vulnerability yeah because obviously I've got a lot of relatives and nieces and nephews nephews and and I'm thinking no yeah he looks kind of big he's really tall and he's really filled out and he said oh hi auntie and he's kissing a hug and I'm thinking if I didn't know you Mm. and I just passed you on the street what would my impression of you be there's a classic um but years ago I think it was for the Guardian newspaper and they had a picture of um, a still of a a black guy running and a little old lady and it said what what do you think's happening here and obviously the kind of subtext is he's he's may have stolen her purse he's running after her or he's Mm -hmm. mugged her or something and actually it was the other way around he was running to give her her purse that she dropped but the that the visual we we feel we, we've kind of learned subconsciously mm. right from the early years mm. that there that this particular visual of a young male is a threat yeah. to society and I think it I, I mean I haven't got the, the capacity or the time to talk it through but I, I, I would certainly recommend um Liz as she talks through this this, the very subtle changes that happen so as that young boy grows into a man Mm -hmm. and and also we have the issue of of, you know of what's happening in the classroom we tend to have mainly female teachers yeah um so again we have that kind of gender thing Mm -hmm. that there might be an anxiety you know if a young young boy is neurodivergent and he's he's dysregulated and he's shouting 
I mean, it happens with all neurodivergent children. There could be an anxiety about what's going to happen. How am I going going to manage or contain this? But somewhere down the line through some kind of programming and misinformation and and, and all of these other things that we call stereotypes, um, we've we've got a real kind of uh, sort of perception issue. Actually, which I think is is interesting, and and I think there's lots of other people. Um, I can't think of the other woman's name who do great work. Um, Penny, it's gone out of my head. Um, she does great work on on uh, diversity and inclusion. Um, yeah. In school, and I think it's a slow moving machine. It's a very yeah. slow, machine, but progress is being made. But there's a huge amount. That we need to do and even people like Jamal Carley who is who is obviously a black male teacher yeah uh, I, th- I think there's there's a lot of work to do mm-hmm. um and, and I always felt that um you know that the perception of my son and how and his character and his personality I would sometimes be in meetings and think you thought he was going to do that yeah you don't know my what, son where did that come from why did you think he was acting aggressively and and that's and this is the challenge with 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 neurodiversity across the piece it's it's the the decoding of those behaviors yeah gosh that must be really hard as a mum though and see like having people viewing your son incorrectly yeah absolutely it is it's difficult for parents as say across the piece but when you think there's a possibility of not only are they de- are they misunderstanding this mm. behavior but they are perceiving it in a negative way yeah because of what there's because of what they are seeing and what they think they are seeing yeah that might be impressive. so it, it is very complicated but I, I would I would only say that you know there is lots of information out there there's lots of training and I also think that there has to be a sort of responsibility to address mm. yourself as an individual. What, you know, when I did my, my girls talk and I was really um, interested, you know, this whole area of gender, I need to, I need to address what my thoughts are about that. Yeah. And in, yeah, and in the same way. Yeah, your your own experiences and how you've been programmed yourself and actually thinking about what, yeah, have you got any stereotypes Absolutely. that you're not even aware of? Absolutely. So, you know, we all have biases. Mm. And I think that, you know, we have to look um, at ourselves as educators and professionals um, and, and and try to look in the mirror and, yeah. and where, is, where is my bias? And, and you know, even the data is there that, that black boys without a neurodivergence are um, reprimanded, told off more often than their white peers for the wow. same mistake for the same misdemeanor there's all the data there there's an organization called black thrive so the data is there this is not a sort of a a made-up thing Mm. um so for me it's about everybody in that in that triangle parents teachers educators having a look at themselves yeah um and and it's not always um who was saying it's not always teacher bad parent good either yeah it's just about what's happening here and that's that's actually where happy in school the work that I do is very much about taking the fire out of some of these um difficult situations 
Um, so, yeah, and so important. So what should schools be doing then to address address this and making sure that you know black boys aren't being excluded more and they're not being reprimanded more? What can what, apart from looking in the mirror and and thinking, which is really really important about thinking about their own bias, what else can they be doing? Is there anything they could be doing to make things better? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think there needs to be. Um, a, a real transparency I mean looking at look at the data and and mm -hmm. and, and just recognizing what's happening and acknowledging yeah. that is happening first of all and then looking at the you know recruitment processes looking at the you know the um the, the uh, you know if you have um I can't think of the word you know what what sanctions are you putting in place are you um responding more harshly to a yeah. particular cohort because we do know the, stat the statistics show, the government uh, UK statistics show that, you know, not only is that cohort excluded more frequently, uh, so is Gypsy and Roma, and so mm -hmm. are kids with special additional needs. Um, yeah. additional needs. So we, we do have already a built-in bias mm -hmm. towards particular groups of children um, yeah. who might need a bit more support and help. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely an, a, a slight knee jerking going on, um, but I, I do like the idea of of um, rather than saying there is an owner of a problem, I'd like to think of it as um, we all own this problem, and, yeah. and what are we going to do about it collectively? Yeah. Um, and and you know, and also building up trust with with parents. That's a really important thing. You know, if a parent saying, well why did this happen and how come he's been excluded three times you know well let's let's be transparent maybe let's look at this it's just look yeah. at the data look at the actions and really start to establish some transparent relationships yeah that's so important and I know you've talked in your book as well about the underdiagnosis particularly with autism for black boys why do you think that's happening because I know we did a podcast episode recently about autism in girls and I think that's been covered quite widely now about the idea that there's definitely been an underdiagnosis of girls who are autistic girls but what about yeah black boys because I'm really interested in them yeah I mean I mean I'm, I'm not a researcher but the, the the research that I've done um indicates that you know when the diagnosis was being discovered Mm -hmm. um the all of the the research was done with with seven-year-old white boys which right. is exactly why girls yeah. are underdiagnosed and black black and asian and other minority groups also yeah. minority groups are also underdiagnosed because if you're looking for a certain thing and you've looked for it and it looks like this yeah what what is your what is your sort of standard marker well but it, we didn't see it like this in this case then you've got to take into cultural considerations yeah. all the subtleties of of communication and social expectations you say if you're thinking about girls so I, th I think that um in some ways the science <laughs> needs to catch up yeah Gosh, it's, it's awful isn't it that it's still based on seven-year-old white boys and just that just um, one small cohort when we've got yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness yeah, yeah absolutely and, and also with adults I mean we, we now know that adult ADHD is is a thing and and yeah. you know a lot of adults are would have qualified for an autism diagnosis had they had one yeah um 50 years ago and they've had a lifetime of difficulties and struggles mm -hmm. so I, I think for me, I'm I'm very much in favour of looking at um, 
particularly neurodiversity and the, the neurodivergent profiles, I, I really focus on ADHD and autism because they're the two I know most about as being a neurotype rather than being a neurodeficit. You know, this yes. is this is how this is just how we are. These mm-hmm. are the types of, of brains that yeah. um you know that the perceptions might be around this, um, the profiles might be around this, and the patterns may be like this, and the interactions might be like this. That's what that particular neurotype brings to the world. Yeah. And I think I think once there's a sort of wholesale catch-up, I mean, everyone talks about autism um awareness. I think the awareness is pretty good. Yeah. Um, it's about acceptance. Yeah. And then we get to a point where we don't have just 29% of autistic um, young adults in employment, which is exactly, exactly. So yeah, awareness, yeah, fine. Let's move on to looking at, you know, acceptance and support and develop and, you know, the proper full engagement in society, if that is something that the individual is capable of. And that starts at school. Yes, and that leads me on to my next set of questions, which is all about your second book, which came out in December. I can't go to school. Your the school non-attendance workbook. Can you tell us all about that then? So, congratulations again, by the way, for the publication in December. Thank you. Yes, yeah. So, so this one um, was kind of fell out of um, the, the work I was doing with with families and lots of girls and lots of girls who weren't able to go to school, um, and and it and it also felt right because it was written during covid yeah. and there was there was so much change there was so much focus on mental health um in young people and a lot of the young people who i was seeing were already presenting with mental health difficulties around school yeah. before we went into lockdown the first lockdown right um so it it isn't just something that's happened um at all it it mm-hmm. was there before but I think now, because um, in some areas, I was reading some newspaper reports about in, in York regions, there are still lots of um, children who just, they, the schools just haven't got back to their pre-COVID attendance levels. Yeah. Um, and there's a huge amount of work going into that. What's going on? What's it? And it's interesting because some some families and children think, well, actually, we, we quite liked this hybrid style yeah. of I've heard this a few times on the podcast there's been a few guests that have said this about children actually they were happier they you know the home learning was actually better for them and then going back to school for them didn't make sense especially logically they were happy at home and doing well with their studies and it didn't make sense that then suddenly they had to go into this building that they weren't as happy in absolutely absolutely and and I think it it really it really highlights the the fact that you know as as society is changing and evolving and with different mindsets and different different minds it, it is the school system does it need to catch up as a, as a charity maybe yes or no but what we can look at is the individuals that are working in the system yeah. the individuals that the, the system itself you know is the slow moving machine but we if if we if we fill it with people who have fresh thinking and fresh approaches and understand that in some cases, you know, maybe it isn't right for every single child to be educated in a physical building. Yeah. That's, that's quite a, a, a revolutionary and radical concept. Mm-hmm. 
which has only really become an issue since we were we were invited to to educate our children at home yeah but the the seed has been sown hasn't Mm. it absolutely it makes you think it makes you think is this the right thing are we doing the right thing for all the children here yeah yeah yeah. for I mean some during Covid some did miss out on that structure and their support that they had in school and all of that um but I I also think there there is a place for well supported financially and intellectually supported alternatives but there still seems to be a lot of resistance to that Um, and I I touch on that in the book in terms of all different you know forest schools um, flexible schooling unschooling um, there are various ways that people want to try something different and because we know that for some children not just the anxiety but then you would get these the social anxiety and then you get the you know the academic pressures yeah so there are there are many reasons why it is for for some young people just not working out at all and we are literally trying to squeeze those square pegs into round holes yeah absolutely and more focusing perhaps on the attendance figures rather than the reasons behind and what we can do to support these children which is heartbreaking so if there will be I was gonna say if the teachers listening there are teachers listening <laughs> the teachers that are listening <laughs> the best of teachers teachers listening. <laughs> the teachers that are listening um what advice would you give them that they can use tomorrow because often I think I do this when I'm listening to podcasts or watching things you have like a child in your head don't you or like a few children yeah. in your head and you think, oh gosh what about saying so they are struggling with attendance or if someone's got someone in their mind what can they do tomorrow what can they walk into school tomorrow yes. and do differently to make an impact yeah. on that child what they can do today is oh, order today. The online <laughs> And hopefully it will come in the next couple of days. So within the book, there are, it's a children's workbook. So it is for the child to read themselves. And it's depending yeah. on their, their reading age, it's between eight and 14. So some children will want to read it by themselves. And I'm talking directly to them, mm-hmm. how they feel, um, what feelings are, why they might have those feelings, what's happening in their family, what's happening at school. So I'm having a conversation with them directly. Yeah. However... There are some issues that are being raised that may be helpful if the child has an adult they can talk to about certain issues. So yeah. it can be read by a Senko or a parent or Elsa. In addition to that, there are um, there's a professional's guide. Mm-hmm. And that professional's guide is, is also a free download with the book. So it's for them to think about how they want to use that resource. Where is this child starting off? So are yeah. they, have they been off school? Have they had a sort of patchy attendance or have they just all of a sudden stopped going to school? Right. So where, at, to tomorrow, what does this child's um, attendance profile look like? What's changed? What do we know already? Yeah. Okay. What is the parent saying? You know, have they moved into the location recently? Have they had a bereavement? Have they, uh, have they taken their um, their, their options? Are they in year eight? Are they, are they concerned about what they go, what subjects they can drop, what they can't drop? Um, is there an undiagnosed um, neurological condition? So it, it, there, there's a lot of information. To, if you just stick your finger in the wind, what have we got right now? Okay. Yeah. 
And then the, the next thing is, okay, so depending on what you've got right now, the child may be in some kind of cyclical pattern mm-hmm. of attendance. So they might be coming in for subjects that they like for whatever reason. It could be the teacher, it could be they're good at it. They could have um, some support in that lesson and they may not be wanting to come in on the days that they have PE, for example. That can be difficult for some children because of their abilities and their strength and their, how they feel you know they're not good at things so there could be you know if if we're looking if we're looking at what's happening today and tomorrow we may already have some pretty big clues yeah as as to what's going on and how we can um uh, get the child to to talk to us and share so what what would you like what would what would work for you what would make you want to come in every day for example yeah. sometimes it, it's just a simple question but the child needs to build a trust with the adult yeah. whoever it might be for them to feel that whatever their reason is is adequate enough to share they mm. may already feel a lot of shame around mm. what this thing is they might say oh well you know but actually well my, my you know my um my grandma died three weeks ago and mum's crying all day and I don't want yeah. to leave her oh, you see yeah. It, it, yeah. it could be there are so many things and I think we've kind of got this we've sort of lumped it all together in one big you know school attendance we know if it goes below 85 get the klaxons out (laughs) yeah (laughs) and and I think yes it's it's a policy it's a strategy it's part of the machinery of education we want our children in however let's just row back a bit and and focus on this one individual child yeah yeah more of a personal a completely more personal approach and actually looking at the reasons behind it because there's always reasons isn't there and it's just looking at why and and I suppose like partnership with parents as well must be an incredible incredibly important part of that as well because half half of it is the parents isn't it and trying to include them and make them feel supported as well because it must be incredibly difficult for parents whose children are wanting to attend school or not necessarily aren't wanting to but are struggling to attend school yeah and 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 that's and that's the thing I mean sometimes unwittingly parents can be what we call maintaining the the avoidance behavior yeah so you know if if the child is is uh very very dysregulated and very upset I mean, I I had a parent say to me, you know, every so often, you know, I would just opt for a quiet life Mm. and I'd I'd let him stay home. Yeah. Because that, that, so then we have to ask ourselves what's really happening in that dynamic and, and, and what would it take for that child to not be having that, not feeling so upset, um, you know it's actually looking at it in in the three in the round in 360 yeah and and this isn't about blaming parents this is about understanding what their pressures are yeah and do they have any other children at home and what is their daily uh situation yeah and 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 this is this is not sort of sort of pointing the fingers and I think if if the parent feels listen to and again if they feel they can they can genuinely share what's happening with the attendance officer or whoever it is Mm. then you can get somewhere but if if there is a sort of this punitive approach and we've we've, you know in some boroughs we do still have parents being fined yeah yeah. uh, um, um, I mean which which is incredibly um 
stressful. So you've all instantly gone into an ad, oops, an adversarial mo- mode. Yeah. So so again, it's 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 about de-escalating that situation um, right from the the beginning. That the first the first touch point should be um, how how can we help you? How can we help yeah. you? How can we help Sarah? Yeah. Rather than sending a letter, your attendance has dropped now. Your chance has dropped to seventy nine percent. You know, and and it's and it's. I know it's time, but in a way, it's it's what we call a false economy with time. You might think you've sent the letter and it's dealt with, yeah. But that can take, that can take a lot longer to solve yeah. than actually investing in a meeting um, or some kind of conversation yeah. that takes an hour. But you really have something, some rich information that you can go away and work with and yeah. develop a plan and then, you know, assess, plan, do, review. That yeah. that investment in time when you see there is a problem is probably better than than relying on the, the letters and the systems to sort yeah. it for you. Because you've got to, I suppose you've got to put yourself in the shoes of the parent who you know you don't know the stresses that are going on at home you don't know the difficulties they're facing and that letter coming through their door must be incredibly like oh frustrating upsetting like the anxiety you must face reading that letter that's just about attendance if you've got re- you know valid reasons why why attendance is very difficult it it must be really really difficult and it already sets it as them against us doesn't it it doesn't it doesn't become a partnership if you've just been sent this letter it, especially when you go especially if, if the child's at primary school and you're you've been dropping them off you've been chatting to these teachers every day and then you get a letter it's very like distanced yes yes and again that's that's because we, we there's a system you know we yeah. need to humanize, humanize yeah. the system yes I think that's completely right yeah but sometimes it's good because if people feel they can hide behind it they haven't got to have that awkward conversation mm. yeah um, but life, life is full of awkward conversation <laughs> <laughs> embrace the awkwardness right embrace well, awkwardness. <laughs> before we go then Susie can you share some links um where people can find your website your books whatever your social media send people places yeah, sure 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 so instagram at happy in school um uh, twitter is at radiant lady um my website is www.happyinschoolproject.com and you'll find everything there um and i have a youtube channel but you can find all the other bits the website's probably the best place to go yeah. and i can little spider arms from there go everywhere brilliant <laughs> oh it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thanks ever so much thank you for having me i've really enjoyed it has the time hasn't the time gone fast absolutely it goes so fast <laughs> oh wasn't she a brilliant guest i just went to bottle her enthusiasm she's just such a positive and lovely person and shared some brilliant advice um do go and look her up and find out about her books and her website etc and I'll pop some relevant resources that are linked to this episode below in the show notes on YouTube and on the podcast provider so thanks again for listening to Sending the Experts with me Georgina Durrant please catch us next time